This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're available online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi. In studio with me, I have Jolani Tulo, Tracy Boomgard, and Tabiso Ntima. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Japan is to host a group of 20 nations which will meet in what is likely to be its most important summit since the global financial crisis. Zimbabwean traders on the black market are prepared to make a profit as ordinary people scramble for the Zim dollar. In economics, automaker Ford says it will cut 12,000 jobs in Europe by the end of next year and aim to return the business to profit. And in sport, Brumby's captain, Christian Lialifano, is to make his 150 Super Rugby appearance when they face the Japanese in Buenos Aires in a Super Rugby semi-final. But right now it's time for us to cross on over to the news desk. Here is Jwalani with your latest news bulletin. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. Tunisia's President Beji Kaida Sebsi has been taken to military hospital after suffering a reported severe health crisis. Reuters is reporting that one of his advisers says he is in a very critical condition. No more details were immediately available. Sebsi was hospitalized last week as well for what the presidency described as a non-serious treatment. He has been a prominent figure in Tunisia since the overthrow of Zine al-Abedin Ben Ali in 2011, which was followed by uprisings across the Middle East, including in nearby Libya and Egypt. Meanwhile, officials in Tunisia say there have been two separate suicide bomb attacks in the capital, Tunis. At least nine people have been wounded, including several civilians, and there are reports of at least one death. The first attack targeted a police patrol in central Tunis. One police officer was killed and at least one other officer, and three civilians were wounded. Shortly afterwards, a second suicide bomber blew himself up near a police station, wounding four people. Civil protection units and police were deployed to the area around the Interior Ministry after the attacks. The BBC's Alan Johnston has the story. What we're hearing is that this uh, suicide bomber appeared in front of one of the police cars there and then detonated a device. Second explosion in an area we understand linked to an anti terror police type operation. One report saying that uh, a man on a bicycle uh, detonated a device as a police car was coming out. We're hearing one policeman dead in these attacks, several injured and some uh, civilians injured too. Police in Ethiopia have arrested more than 50 people from Amhara political party following a failed attempt to seize power in the region. The opposition national movement for after Amhara denies any link to the alleged attempted coup and has condemned the violence in the region. The BBC's Kalkidan Yebetal reports. The national movement of the Amhara told the BBC that in the wake of the weekend killings, many individuals were arrested in the capital Addis Ababa. 
Police had earlier announced that several suspects were held for questioning in the state where the alleged coup attempt took place. Since its founding last year, the party has emerged as a rival to an Amhara party in the ruling coalition. The city's police could not be reached for comment as Ethiopia emerges from a four-day internet blackout. Sudanese riot police have fired tear gas at scores of students who rallied against the ruling generals near the presidential palace in downtown Khartoum. Protesters have been staging sporadic and scattered demonstrations in recent days in the capital ahead of mass rallies called by protest leaders on June the 30th. The umbrella protest movement, the Alliance for Freedom and Change, has called for mass rallies in Khartoum and other cities. It's the first time such a nationwide calls for, for such a nationwide call rather since a brutal crackdown on a protest camp outside the army headquarters on June 3rd left dozens killed and hundreds wounded. And finally, a court in Bangladesh has begun the trial of 16 people over the gruesome death of a young woman. They're accused of facing the death penalty for the crime that sparked protests and government promises of tough action. 19-year-old Nusrat Jahan Rafi was set on fire in April after allegedly refusing to withdraw claims of sexual harassment against the head teacher of the Islamic seminary she attended. The 16-year-old, the 16 accused, include the teacher. All defendants pleaded not guilty, and eight of the accused told the court that police forced them to sign written statements confessing involvement in the murder. Headlines at 5:30 for Channel Africa. I'm Jolani Tulo. Japan will, as from tomorrow, host its first ever G20 summit in Osaka, where leaders from the group of 20 nations will meet in what is likely to be its most important summit since the global financial crisis. The G20 was established in 1999 to increase multilateral cooperation for the recovery of the global economy. Uh, to bring stability to the global financial system, promote long-term sustainable growth, and to strengthen growth and global governance. The 2019 summit will focus on eight key themes spanning the global economy. These include uh, trade and investment, innovation, environment and energy, employment, women's empowerment, development, as well as health. More from Kurbis van Staden, Senior Researcher, Foreign Policy Program at the South African Institute for International Relations. Generally, the G20 gathering is important because it tends to set global agendas for, you know, like what, what are the big priorities for, for the entire world, especially in relation to trade. I think this year it's particularly important because the trade system itself is so kind of upended at the moment. So the, the trade war between the United States and China is causing fallout everywhere. Um, and we're also dealing with a whole bunch of new crises, particularly a climate crisis. Um, and so I think it's going to be a really important occasion to deal with some of these questions. So talking about that U.S.-China trade war that has rattled businesses around the world and it's also, you know, cast a shadow over the global economy, is a resolution possible after the summit? What's your take? The G20 summit itself, you know, has a whole bunch of of important kind of agenda-setting roles that they do, but it's also very important for all of the meetings that happen on the side. So President Trump has a bunch of meetings scheduled, and one of them is with Xi Jinping, uh, President of China, 
So it looks like they're going to be discussing the trade war. Um, and I think the outcome, whether positive or negative on that, um, is going gonna, is gonna to really impact uh, stock markets around the world. Um, on the way in, um, President Trump has threatened already to add more tariffs to Chinese products. Um, but we've seen over the last few years that that tends to be his strategy. He tends to make a lot of, of kind of threats right before a meeting, and then we'll see what happens in the meeting, actually. So back to the continent, Africa is quite underrepresented with only South Africa as a permanent member. What does the country's participation mean then for the rest of the continent of Africa? South Africa has always uh, walks a slightly complicated line where they, they have, they're trying to promote an African agenda, but at the same time they're very sensitive to not be seen as trying to lead Africa or speak for Africa. Um, so there's also the African Union and NEPAD are also attend most G20 meetings. So they have observer stages. But South Africa is the only African full member. Um, and so they are saying that they are very interested in pushing for more infrastructure investment um, and that they're looking at a more equitable trade field. Um, we have to remember that South Africa itself has also suffered under tariffs um, during this, this kind of trade tensions. So they have their own kind of vested interest in trying to not only attract more attention to the continent, but also to kind of smooth out all of the all of the trade tensions that are going on. The G20 initiative on supporting industrialization in Africa and least developed countries, which was launched uh, under China's G20 presidency of 2016, and the 2017 German presidency's compact with Africa gave, you know, moments of engagement. How can Africa use these initiatives to deepen its engagement with the G20 and boost its own development? These engagements, they frequently get pushed very hard by a particular kind of member countries, particularly the, the countries that are hosting. Um, so the Chinese um, initiative in, in 2016 was covered a lot of what China is doing in Africa anyway. Um, the, com- the German compact with Africa was this interesting kind of new initiative that was looking at trying to help African countries to implement reforms to make their local economies more business-friendly while also matchmaking with companies in the global north for great investment. The jury is still out on where that is right now. Like the process is ongoing, but it's only it's only been going for two years. Um, so it looks promising. We think that Japan is going to be another, they're going to be pushing a lot of engagement with Africa because there's a big meeting between Japan and African leaders coming up in August. So we think that it's probably going to, we're going to see at the G20 the early, early versions of some of the engagement with Africa that Japan will probably then also push in August. That was Kurbis van Staden, senior researcher with the Foreign Policy Program at the South African Institute for International Relations, on the line talking to Asanda Beda. Ethiopia reports that men in camouflage uniforms killed more than 50 people and injured 23 others in the Matikal zone of Ethiopia's Benishigal Gumuz region. The authorities say the sus- they suspect the attackers might be the same people who were involved in the coup in Amara uh, region last Saturday. Meanwhile, the government is still searching for more of those who may have been involved in planning a failed coup attempt in its Amara region and the assassination of the military chief of staff in the capital Addis Ababa. Both happened on the 22nd of June. Some arrests have already been made. Coletta Wanyoni reports. General Sierra Mekonen, Ethiopia's military chief of staff, was buried in Mekele in the northern part of the country on Wednesday. 
He was buried alongside retired Major General Gezai Abera, who it is reported had visited the general at his residence last Saturday when they met their demise. He is described by many as having been in the wrong place at the wrong time, because he too succumbed to an assassination by a bodyguard of the military chief of staff. On the same day, in the Amhara region, the president of the Amhara region and his advisor were shot and killed by the Amhara chief of military. This is according to the prime minister's office. Both events have raised a lot of speculation among the population as well as fear. In the Amhara region, police says it has arrested over 170 people in connection with the coup attempt. Here in Addis Ababa, arrests continue of those suspected to have aided in the whole plan. The Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Abiy Ahmed, has accused the perpetrators of the two Saturday tragic events as having a motive to prevent him from carrying out his reforms. When he came to power in 2018, the Prime Minister projected himself as a reformist. He ended a two-decade stalemate between Ethiopia and Eritrea by reaching out to the neighboring country. Flights between the two countries have since resumed. In the military, he replaced the chief of military staff in July 2018 and gave the mantle to the now-fallen general Sierra Mekonen. He also appointed to presidency Ambachu Mekonen, the president of the Amhara region, who died in the foiled coup attempt in the Amhara region. In economic reforms, he plans to partially privatize some state enterprises like telecommunication and the national airlines, Ethiopian Airlines, and this has attracted the interest of foreign multinationals hoping to profit from the market of 100 million people. But as Ethiopia goes into a transition, ethnicity has shown its face more vividly. Ethnic clashes in parts of the country have displaced over 2 million people in just a few months. Elections in the country are planned for 2020, but no date has been set yet. A UK-based conflict armament research says weapons have been pouring into Ethiopia from countries including Sudan and South Sudan, making the country even more vulnerable as it heads towards elections. Internet was shut down in Ethiopia since Saturday in the whole country. On Tuesday, the African Union, the United Nations and embassies were reconnected. Text services, however, in the whole country remain blocked. Security has been increased in the capital city, Addis Ababa. The government says it is determined to crack down on everybody involved in the Saturday tragedy. But the citizens on the other side are asking that the Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed should begin showing more control of the country and return the rule of law and peace. I'm Colette Anjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Hi, Nelson Hodesasap Mandela. And I solemnly and sincerely promise that we'll always promote all that will advance the Republic and oppose all that may harm it and maintain the Constitution and all other law of the Republic. I, Matamera Cyril Ramaphosa, swear that I will be faithful to the Republic of South Africa. So help me God. Channel Africa. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. 
Listen to Spotlight Africa, a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. Former Acting National Director of Public Prosecutions, the NPA, Nom Ngobo Jiba, says she will continue her battle to clear her name even after her landslide victory in South Africa's Constitutional Court. The Apex Court today ruled that former NPA officials Jiba and Lawrence Mkhwebi should not be struck off the role of attorneys. The Mukhoro Commission of Inquiry found her unfit to hold office and she was uh, summarily dismissed by President Sol Ramaphosa earlier this year. This was based on the same complaints which she has now been cleared of by the courts. Candace Nolan reports. While the question of Jiba's misconduct split the Supreme Court of Appeal, the Constitutional Court was unanimous that it could not enter the fray. This means that the majority decision of the SCA clearing Jiba of any wrongdoing stands. Justice Chris Jafter penned the judgment on behalf of his nine colleagues. This court further finds that the GCB did not seek to protect a constitutional right. Instead, all that it sought to do was to enforce the Admission Act so as to protect the public and preserve the proper functioning of the administration of justice. The apparently incorrect determination of facts by the majority in the Supreme Court of Appeal also does not raise a constitutional issue. If what is at issue in a particular case is the determination of facts, then the jurisdiction of this court is not engaged. On the same three complaints raised by the General Counsel of the Bar, the Mohoro Commission of Inquiry found Jiba to be unfit to hold office. The President fired her earlier this year in a move that is yet to be confirmed by Parliament. Chiba's lawyer, Zola Majavu, says they plan to take the Mukhoro report on review. This could take about three years, with the matter most likely ending up in the Constitutional Court again. We're all going to remain stum, wait for the parliamentary process to be finalised. We only speak at that time in terms of what our course of action would be. We remain stum again and wait until the entire review judicial process has been finalised and then speak. That is how she has conducted herself as an officer of the court. And that's pretty much where we are. She may decide that she wants a job back, or she may decide that, look, you know what, the waters have been contaminated, she'll walk away. But imagine if she had walked away amid these allegations without subjecting herself to legal processes. You guys would have a field day over here. Bottom line is, it is not up to her to say what should happen. But you ask me how she feels, and I'm telling you how she feels. She feels that some cows are holier than others. She feels that she's been targeted because she's a black and a female. Whether I agree with her or not is another story. Those are her feelings and those are my instructions. Majavu was referencing judicial comments about attorney Willi Hofmeyer, who was seemingly left off the hook by the Law Society. Candace Nolan, Johannesburg. Individualization, cost fixation, cyber risk, technological innovation and regular reviews are five of ten megatrends that Sunlum, South African Financial Services Group, has identified to be shaping the retirement funding industry and affecting financial resilience for South Africans. The insights originate from the 2019 Sunlum Benchmark Research, the group's annual retirement research, which has been surveying retirement industry stakeholders for 39 years now. More from Director Simeka Health, uh, an authorized financial services provider in South Africa, Avishal Seath. There's a lot of change happening at the moment, and the main driver of that change 
is currently regulation. So regulation has been updated recently in terms of the default regulation. And because of this, we're looking at the individualization of retirement funds and how we need to focus more and more on members now. And that, that's essentially the change that's, that's happening right now. So 10 mega trends have been identified that will have a direct impact on the financial resilience of South Africans. Take us through those. Sure. Um, the first one, and I touched on it a bit earlier, is in terms of governance and regulation. The big change in regulation is what's called the default regulation that came into effect on 1 March this year. And this regulation speaks specifically to focusing more on the individuals within retirement funds and not so much on the board of trustees or the employer, but the actual member of the retirement fund and how we can help them get to the best outcome. There's also a whole lot of other regulation, like King for uh, the Financial Sector Conduct Authority releasing Directive A, um, and how we need to look at triple B, double E within the retirement fund space. Another mega trend is consolidation. And in consolidation, we're speaking specifically to the consolidation of standalone funds, where there's a lot less standalone funds now than there were in the past. And we believe that there's going to be more consolidation into the future, where standalone funds are converting into umbrella funds or becoming participating employers of umbrella funds in the market. To give you an idea of the level of consolidation, in 2005, there were 13,000 standalone funds, and today there's just around probably 1,400. We expect that number to go down to maybe 800 in the next couple of years, so that that trend is definitely going to continue. Um, Another trend is that we're seeing that now, since the move from standalone to umbrella has happened in a large-scale manner, consultants and employers are actually reviewing their choice of umbrella providers, so you can choose between different umbrella fund providers within the administration space. A big change that we're noticing is integration with healthcare, and this speaks to the holistic view of wellness, and this talks about how you need to look at healthcare, insurance, and retirement funding as part of a bigger ecosystem. We can't look at each of them in isolation of each other. They all work together in contributing to an employee's total wellness outcome, and it's essential that you have a holistic view of them and how they work together and try and leverage all the service providers from these various sections, if I can call it, of the wellness areas to be able to work towards a single goal, which is good wellness for for members at the end of the day. In the group risk space, there's been a lot of disruption over the past three years, and I think the main thing that consumers would have noticed is an increase in the group risk rates. And this has resulted from member behavior, like not taking care of themselves. I think a study showed recently that South Africa is the most unhealthy country in the world due to levels of obesity and and those kinds of things. We're also a very stressed country. And that stress leads to a lot of unwellness as well. There's also risks in the group risk area that arise from economic stagnation. Group risk works on a subsidized, cross-subsidization barrier, and that's something that needs to be addressed. Uh, technology is massive, massive trend that's happening at the moment, and it's going to transform financial experiences across the board, and not just in the retirement fund space. We need to be able to guide members. The majority of members are using mobile phones, and a lot of them are using smartphones, and they're able to access a lot more functionality. It's about how providers are able to harness the members' experience on a mobile phone and be able to influence them to make right decisions or influence their behavior to make good financial decisions. Um, There's also a change in this fixation on costs. So cost has been a focus in the industry for a long time. Now what we're seeing is there's there's a shift from focusing specifically on the costs and people are starting to look more at the value that they get 
from the product. So where costs are reasonable and competitive, then at that point you need to start looking at the value that you're getting. So as long as the costs are comparable, pretty close to each other, reasonable and competitive, then you need to look at the value that you get from your different service providers. And lastly, what can industry players, that is including the the retirement industry, employers and South Africans do to mitigate some of the risks and harness the opportunities associated with these trends? So we believe that it's it's a collaborative effort that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. There's no one player in the system that's going to be able to resolve our poor retirement outcomes that we currently have. The research shows us that less than 30%, probably less than 20% of members of retirement funds are going to be able to retire comfortably when they reach retirement age. And that's a scary stat. And the main reason is because of non-preservation. So when a member changes employers, changes their job, they take their retirement fund savings in cash instead of preserving it. And that's the biggest problem that we have in the industry at the moment. It's about a combined effort from all of the stakeholders to be able to change member behavior and create a kind of a savings culture in the country that we really don't have at the moment. The stakeholders must understand that you've got a massive responsibility right now. And the reason I'm saying that is because the savings in retirement funds for 95% of the members of retirement funds is their only savings. They don't have any other savings besides the retirement fund savings. So this comes with massive responsibility and we need to make sure that we're able to encourage good financial behavior and try and change that poor behavior that we've seen in the past to ensure that members get better retirement outcomes into the future. And that's the task that all of us as stakeholders in this industry have at the moment. And that was Avishal Seath, uh, the director of Simeka Health on the line, talking to Lebuchang Mabange. There is no intention whatsoever that Brexit, the withdrawal of the UK from the European Union, would mean that Great Britain would retreat from Africa. So says the British High Commissioner to South Africa, Nigel Casey. In an interview with Channel Africa, he added that in Africa, 400 new jobs are in fact added to the diplomatic network and new missions are opening in at least four countries. We asked Casey to summarize for us the latest on the Brexit process. So we were due to leave the EU at the end of March, which was two years uh, from the beginning of the negotiating process. Because Parliament hadn't ratified the withdrawal agreement, our government was very keen to leave with an agreement. We had an extension granted to the negotiating period, first to April and now to the end of October. So it is still the government's ambition to have that withdrawal agreement ratified by Parliament. The two leading candidates to be Prime Minister both said that they want to leave with a withdrawal agreement and that I'm sure is going to be their firm ambition. Both have been equally clear that they need to deliver Brexit which was voted for in a referendum in 2016. How much support is there for a no-deal exit? Well, I mean, opinion polls on that show different things. I mean, I think the the main thing to keep in mind is that both the two leading contenders to be Prime Minister, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt, are very clear that their preference is to leave with a deal and to avoid disruption to our own economy and to those of our neighbours. And so that's what we're going to be going for. Deal or no deal, if Brexit do in fact happen, what will the effect be on relations of Great Britain, the UK, with first of all South Africa and then the rest of the African continent? I think it's an opportunity for us to revive and refresh our relations with the world beyond Europe. We are already doing that in Africa. We have added another 400 jobs in our diplomatic network in Africa. And here in Southern Africa, we're reopening our embassies in Lesotho and in Iswatini. We're also opening in Mali and Chad. So we're going to have a bigger 
diplomatic footprint than we've ever had and more staff here that's the first time in my career that that's happened so it's an exciting time to be working here in Africa. I'm doing this interview with you very shortly after our new president had been inaugurated a new administration much expected after Ramaphosa the expectations of you as the representative here or from the UK in general? Yeah look we view President Ramaphosa's election as an opportunity to reboot our relationship to refresh it after some difficult years to be honest and And we're really pleased that we've made a lot of progress over the last year. We had President Ramaphosa in London at the Commonwealth Summit in April. We had our Prime Minister Theresa May here in August last year. We've got the Duke and Duchess of Sussex coming here on an official visit this spring. And so there's a real upswing in our relationship. And we are going to go for it for for all it's worth um, to really put the relationship back on our really upward trajectory. That was the British High Commissioner to South Africa, Nigel Casey, talking to Janine Kutzer in Pretoria. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on black economic empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLab to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Bigger and better. Africa's leading smart city summit returns to Johannesburg, South Africa from 3 to 4 July 2019. Smart Cities Africa Summit 2019 is focused on co-creating smart cities in Africa beyond the rhetoric. Join Channel Africa, bringing you 40 speakers from 40 African countries to speak to 400 delegates. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Channel Africa. All right, it's 17.30 Central African time right now. It's uh, time for us to cross on over to the news desk, where Jwalani Tulo is standing by to let us know what's happening in the latest news headlines. Thank you, Samora. Making headlines. Tunisia's President Beji Kaida Sepsi has been taken to a military hospital after suffering a reported severe health crisis. Sudanese riot police have fired tear gas at schools of students who rallied against the ruling generals near the presidential palace in downtown Khartoum. And finally, police in Ethiopia have arrested more than 50 people from an Amhara political party following a failed attempt to seize power in the region. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo.
It's been a few days since the shock announcement banning the use of foreign currencies in Zimbabwe. Traders on the black market are preparing to make a profit as ordinary people scramble for the Zim dollar. But for many Zimbabweans, the current currency confusion is causing further hardship. Shingai Nyoka reports from Harare. Rearing chickens is not blessing Yambara's usual line of work. She's a maths teacher and has been for the past 10 years. She spends her mornings in the classroom and her afternoons in the fields or chicken coops. The current economic crisis in Zimbabwe has forced professionals to take up business ventures to survive. When she sits down to do the sums about what she earns and what she spends, the numbers simply don't add up. I earn 350 net bond and after that I buy diapers for 250 and left with 100 which cannot buy me any, any more stuff. So literally it's nothing. I feel, I feel useless. I feel like I can't provide for my family. I feel so useless and I know I feel like crying. We're in the backyard. She's feeding the chickens and ducks, as well as tending to a vegetable garden, and says that she actually earns more from these activities than she does from being a teacher. Five years ago, Mrs. Nyambara earned the equivalent of 400 US dollars a month from teaching. Inflation has eroded her salary to the equivalent of $35. It's, it's disheartening. You don't have even the energy, the, the zeal just to plan and go and deliver the lesson, what we used to do, and uh, it's, it's, not, it's not feasible, it's not workable, honestly. It was some teachers' unions who were at the forefront of petitioning government to bring a local currency and ban the use of the US dollar, in the hopes the move would stem rampant inflation, which is at its highest since 2008. For Mrs. Nyambara, this move has not been a blessing. But black market traders see it as a golden opportunity. In downtown Harare at a bus terminus called Roadport, we met a foreign currency trader who didn't want to be identified. As we were talking to him, police were rounding up some of his colleagues. What they're doing is illegal and they face a jail term of up to 10 years. How do you think this policy will affect your livelihood? Do you think you'll still be able to survive? Because effectively the government wants to put you out of business. No, I don't think so. Why? Because this, this, this trade has been done before. Well, remember, we are rewinding back to 2008, where some people become millionaires through money changing. So I think they are just empowering the black market. I think I'm excited. I wouldn't say I'm worried, I'm excited, because I'm seeing an opportunity. What opportunity? To make money. Mm-hmm. Because I know now the body of this on demand. Everyone has to come and change the money. The black market rate dropped from Monday. One US dollar bought you 11 Zim dollars. It was 8 to 1 late Wednesday. But it remains to be seen if this is the solution that will stabilize an economy crippled by fuel and electricity shortages. That report was by the BBC's Shingai Nyoka.
The South African Banking Risk Information Center, SABRIC, released its annual crime statistics for 2018. This took place yesterday at the Capitol on the Park in Santon, in the heart of Africa's economic hub, Johannesburg. Lebohang Mabange attended the briefing and filed this report. The annual crime statistics for 2018 by the South African Banking Risk Information Center, that is the SABRIC, were presented by Koliani Pile, Chief Executive Officer at SABRIC. The presentation covered the violent crime, digital crime and card fraud statistics. With violent crimes in the South African banks, Pile announced a decrease in the statistics and expressed her feelings with regards to this. So on this you'll see good news, 33% down in terms of the number of incidents that we've seen. 22% down in terms of the actual cash loss. So while we're happy that it's a a significant decrease, we're never happy when there's any incident at all. I mean, our banks are always concerned about any of their customers being, being affected. The bank loses no money, but that's not the issue. The issue is that they don't want their customers uh, impacted upon. And of course, through various uh, communication platforms and our awareness, and the banks themselves advise their customers on all the different ways that they can actually do banking so that they don't have to expose themselves or put themselves at risk to, to, to be robbed. Um, and she further explains more prevalent ways in which people get robbed, either on their way to deposit money into their bank branch or after withdrawing money from the bank branch that we talk about different ways that it can happen and we, we're seeing it happen at ATMs, we're seeing it happen at bank branches, but with bank branches we, we're seeing quite often uh, the second most prevalent one is when people are taking money to deposit it at the bank branch that they get robbed, but the most prevalent is when people have already withdrawn cash at a branch and then they're leaving and then they get, get, get robbed. They, they don't get robbed inside the bank, they get robbed en route back to either their vehicles or their homes or their place of business. So we, we, those are the two more prevalent ones. And so we thought we'd make it available. But According to Sabric, there has been an increase in the number of bank burglaries in South Africa. Pile explains. Now here you're going to see it's the first time since I started speaking that I'm showing you some increases. So we're seeing a 3% increase in burglary. This is when the bank branch is broken into and uh, things are stolen and it's not just money but we ha- are seeing an increase a 3% increase in the number of incidents but we saw a 75% increase in the amount uh, that was actually stolen so taking collectively whether it was cash or whether it was equipment computer equipment or furniture or whatever that was, was stolen when they broke into we saw a 75% increase and in the next slide Cash and transit, that is the CIT robberies, decreased by 22% from 376 to 292 incidents from 2017 to 2018. Here's what Pile had to say about this decrease. So of course we're happy about the 22% done and I must say that the police and the CIT companies as well as the banks having come together and really pulled out all the stops to put special initiatives into place really did make a a significant impact and towards the latter part of the year you could see as the time went that it actually started to reduce and certainly even in terms of the amounts that were were stolen 
uh, because different measures were put into, into place as well. In 2018, 23,466 incidents across banking apps, online banking and mobile banking amounted to 262,826,888 in gross losses. Pile says that it is concerning that incidents across these platforms increased by 75.3%. I know you get quite a shock when you look at a 75.3% increase in digital crime. Um, and of course, value-wise, we saw an increase of 4.9% in the amount that was actually stolen. So, of course, an extremely concerning figure for our banks. Um, we, 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 we certainly are concerned about the fact that bank customers uh, are, are being compromised, and we'll talk a little bit about it. Card not present, that is the CNP fraud on South African-issued credit cards remain the leading contributor to gross fraud losses in the country, accounting for 79.5% of all losses. CNP debit card fraud showed the greatest increase in losses at 62.3% due to the enablement of card not present transactions on debit cards. The highest, the most prevalent on credit cards has been card not present fraud. Card not present fraud is when your card doesn't have to physically be with you when you're actually using it, so it's all on your, on your, online, on your online space. So we see most of it, well, all, all of those that I spoke to you about on digital. So a card not present, 79%, quite high, uh, where we saw um, uh, most of the spend happen there. Then, of course, you've got counterfeit cards where people get access to the information and they make a card. Uh, another card and they use it. Then you've got false applications, lost and stolen. Lost and stolen, the, we call it the lost and stolen category, but it's actually more stolen and we have got uh, some of our bank representatives. In conclusion, Pile explains how Sabric gets information on the crime that is happening in South African banks and how they put it together to get the final statistics. So while our banks are serious competitors with each other, they don't compete when it comes to fighting crime. And so as part of our model, and the way in which we work, every single member of ours, every single one of our 18 member banks, sends through every single bit of the crime risk information. So every incident that happens anywhere relating to that particular bank's customer comes into the Sabric database. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Lebohang Mabange. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLE to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa.
Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa, a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. Bigger and better, Africa's leading smart city summit returns to Johannesburg, South Africa from 3 to 4 July 2019. Smart Cities Africa Summit 2019 is focused on co-creating smart cities in Africa beyond the rhetoric. Join Channel Africa, bringing you 40 speakers from 40 African countries to speak to 400 delegates. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Channel Africa. All right, at 17.44 Central African time, Tracy Boomgard is in the studio, ready to give us the latest in economics news. Thank you, Samora. Zimbabwean President Emerson Mnangagwa has been given a seven-day ultimatum to fix the current financial crisis or there would be a national shutdown. The latest call comes from pressure group Tajamuka Sesvikile. The latest ultimatum follows Zimbabwe's announcement that it is banning the use of multi-currencies in place of the local RTGS dollar. Tajamuka, which comprises a group of youths fiercely opposed to the status quo, is also demanding the immediate resignation of Reserve Bank Governor John Manguja, who promised to quit his job if the bond note he introduced against public disapproval in 2016 failed. MTN Rwanda has dropped its 4G tariffs in a drive to continue to offer affordable internet to all in Rwanda. Customers can now purchase 4G data bundles at the same price as the 3G bundles. Data continues to be one of the fastest growing sources of revenue and subscriptions for MTN Rwanda with a growth rate of 52% year on year. Ride hailing company Uber says it's in talks with regulators over plans to expand into two West African countries and provide a boat service in Lagos, Nigeria. Uber says it has 36,000 active drivers in sub-Saharan Africa. It currently operates in a number of countries in East Africa and South Africa, but is largely absent from West Africa, aside from Nigeria and Ghana. Ivory Coast and Senegal have two of the world's fastest-growing economies, according to the International Monetary Fund, and Nigeria, which has Africa's largest economy, is the continent's most populous nation. Automaker Ford says it will cut 12,000 jobs in Europe by the end of next year in an aim to return the business to profit. Ford Europe has been losing money for years and pressure to restructure its operations increased after arch-rival General Motors raised profits by selling its European Opel and Vauxhall 
brands to France's Peugeot SA. Ford says it will close three plants in Russia, a plant in France and Wales, and cut shifts at factories in Valencia, Spain and Salois in Germany. Chinese and U.S. economic and trade negotiation teams are in contact to prepare for the meeting between the two heads of state at this weekend's G20 summit in Osaka, Japan. China's called on the U.S. to listen to the voices from the majority of its companies and consumers, abandon its wrong practices and solve the current problems through equal-footed dialogue and cooperation. In a telephonic conversation between Chinese Vice Premier Liu, U.S. Trade Representative Representative, Robert Lighthouser and Treasury Secretary Stephen Munchen on Monday, opinions on economic and trade issues were exchanged. The U.S. dollar is trading at 358.38 Nigerian Naira, 10.53 Botswana Pula, at 100.78 Kenyan Chilean and at 12.91 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.84 Brazilian Hale, 62.94 Russian Ruble, 69.31 Indian Rupee, 6.88 Chinese Wang, and at 14.28 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 78 pence to the British pound and at 87 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,405 and platinum at $811 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $66.25 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. All right, it's time for us to cross on over to the sports desk right now. Tabison Tima is standing by to give you your latest sporting news. Good evening, sports fans. I'm Tabison Tima with the latest sports update at this hour. We begin with the Africa Cup of Nations news. The East African Derby takes center stage at the African finals in Egypt. The Harami Stars of Kenya face Taifa Stars of Tanzania in a match that could see either team crashing out of the tournament. Both lost their opening matches on Sunday and cannot afford a slip up tonight. Here's how some of the fans think of this encounter. I think it's going to be a draw game. I don't see uh, Tanzania to win uh, either Kenya. Uh, they're playing almost the same kind of a game as I've seen them, the Tanzania, when they play against uh, uh, Senegal and uh, Kenya against uh, Algeria. So my prediction, I think it's going to be a draw game. If one will win, then I'll say Kenya will win, at least 1-0. Tanzania, I mean, Kenya was much better, much better. They tried to pay what is one, two attempts to a goal compared to Tanzania, which had nothing, no one attempt to the goal. So I think Kenya is slightly better or much more better than Tanzania. Another East African team will also be in action tonight. Burundi is up against Madagascar. Burundi captain Saido Berahino believes they can win this encounter. Obviously we have to give respect to Madagascar. They played really well against Guinea. Most of the players watched the game. 
and uh, we went to the training pitch and prepared very well for that game because like the coach said that's another final for us and uh, we have to make sure that we do everything positively to make sure we get the three points in another match also scheduled for tonight senegal is up against algeria Meanwhile, Uganda Cranes head coach Sebastian Disap is confident that his team will qualify for the round of 16 at the ongoing Cup of Nations in Egypt. This after the Cranes played a one-all draw against Zimbabwe last night. The draw took Uganda to four points, two less than group leaders Egypt. This is how Uganda striker Patrick Kadu and captain Dennis Onyango responded after the match. A point was, was well deserved in our game. Um, I thank the players for the commitment that unity in that in the dressing room um, we are like this is our moment you understand this is our moment we go for this 45 minutes the, comp- the competition is, is a little bit tough but uh, we take game by game uh, every team comes with its own challenges and uh, the more we fight, the more we win, the more we, we get confidence going forward because there are a lot of good teams that are in a competition. But uh, all in all, we all need to get as far as we can and see how strong we are. And wrapping it up with rugby news. Brambi's playmaker and captain Christian Liali Ifano will make his 150th Super Rugby appearance for his franchise when they face the Jaguares at the Estadio Jose Amalfitani in Buenos Aires in the Super Rugby semi-final in the early hours of Saturday morning. The Brambi skipper will lead a largely unchanged side into the cauldron of the home of Valais Sarsfield Football Club, hoping to guide his team to their seventh Super Rugby final and to take another step towards the third title. The only change from the starting 15 that comprehensively saw the Sharks off in Canberra last Saturday sees Lachlan McCarthy coming in at number 8, promoted from the bench following the injury sustained by Pitsamu, who could not travel. Speaking after their match against the Sharks, Liali Ifano said they know the task that lay ahead and will give it their best shot. Yeah, the way these boys just handle whatever comes at them has been amazing. We'll prepare as best we can. We know we've got a big trouble ahead of us. But we're in this part of the season, man, and we're happy. Um, so we'll enjoy this tonight and then uh, refocus in on uh, getting the job done next week. Meanwhile, former Springbok coach Nick Mallet says it will be difficult for the Brumbies to pull off an upset in Argentina. Just have a look at this team and its management uh, and, and the crowd. Uh, it's, it's a historical moment for this team. They've, they were introduced uh, three or four seasons ago to Super Rugby. They battled in the beginning. They've slowly worked themselves up into a position. Now they've got a home uh, semi-final. It's a huge matter of pride for, for them. And uh, it's not just another franchise. This is... This is uh, Argentina basically showing what they can do on the rugby field and preparing for a World Cup. So whoever, whoever has to go there in the semi-final, I think it's going to be a very, very tough, uh, tough game. And we, I called it, we called it uh, about a month ago, uh, Aguirre's Crusaders final, and I think that'll be a fantastic game. That's a sport at this hour. Stay tuned on Channel Africa for programming news and sports from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest.
And that wraps up the first hour of Africa Digest. Be sure to join us again later on in the evening from 1900 hours Central African time. But for now, from myself, Samora Magesi, producer Leander Maume, technical producer Tumelo Mukwena, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for listening. For comments on the show, do send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS to plus 27763003327. Taking us to the top of the hour is Nyaktanda by Zandile Kumalo. We'll see you later.
Kulandilani pa polo gra-